0: Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi Green Juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi Red Juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine, and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com slash genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius use code genius to get 20% off any item remember wwworganifycom slash genius
1: forget frequently asked questions
0: common sense common knowledge or
1: google how about advice from a real genius 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed 5% go above and beyond they become very good at what they do but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast
0: with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button, and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently, after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would please subscribe to the podcast, that would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up, and check in the description for buy me a coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate. It, it would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. Uh, today I have Claire Whitaker. She's a graduate student and a PhD candidate in the lab of Dr. Haling Jim at University of California, Riverside. And we're going to talk about a particular fungus that she's working on and learning and studying about, uh, that affects, you know, food crops and, uh, fruits and vegetables, et cetera. So Claire, thanks for coming.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: If you would tell me about your, your research, what's involved.
2: So my PhD is in the Department of Botany and Plant Sciences at University of California, Riverside. However, the lab that I'm in focuses more on plant pathogen interactions. And within that realm, I'm looking at a specific system. I'm looking at a necrotrophic fungal pathogen, meaning it kills its host. And that necrotrophic fungal pathogen is Botrytis scenario, and I'm working on it in the context of Arabidopsis thaliana, which is the model plant. It's the mouse of plant biology.
0: Oh, so what happens? How do um, these plants get this fungus and what happens to them?
2: Well, the examples that I look at, I give the plants the fungus. So I'm actually infecting plants. But in globally, Botrytis scenaria is a very widespread fungal pathogen of plants. It's a Generalist, So it can infect a bunch of different types of plants, over 200 different species, actually. And these include a lot of crop plants, not only produce like grapes, tomatoes, but also um, agricultural products like flowers. So flowers that you buy at the grocery store, those can also be infected and spoiled by this fungus, Botrytis.
0: Well, how do the plants get affected and under what conditions? Is it spring, summer? How does it happen?
2: So, botrytis, as a fungus, infects via spores. The spores will, in the lab, be dropped onto the leaves in a droplet of water. The way it can happen in the environment is very similar. Basically, it's spread through spores. These spores can travel via water droplets. So, if an infected plant has a raindrop fall on it, that drop will pick up spores. And then as it splashes to other leaves, that can spread the fungus. And then it can also be stored in the soil, essentially. Those spores can survive for a very long time in the soil, and then they can be taken up. They come into contact with plants and infect them that way as well.
0: What plant defenses are there to prevent this? Because otherwise it seems like it's so easy for it to spread, everything will be affected.
2: Right. So one of the really cool things that the lab that I work in, the lab of Dr. Hailing Jin, she and some of her postdocs and previous researchers discovered that plants are fighting back using um, small interfering RNAs, this RNA interference, which is very cool. Um, Basically, the plant sends small snippets of RNA that go into the fungal cells and mess up the translation and transcription of fungal proteins. And these small interfering RNAs are transported via extracellular vesicles, which are really well known in human and fungal and microbial interactions. However, not a lot of research had been done in the field of extracellular vesicles in plants so it's just now in the past 10 years or so coming to light that not only do plants produce extracellular vesicles, but the fungal cells also produce extracellular vesicles and the plants use the extracellular vesicles to send small interfering RNAs into the fungal cells.
0: I guess I'm used to understanding plant cells as having a, a hard you know cell wall, but I'm probably assuming that not much comes in or out of it. So, I mean, is EV production the same as in, let's say, animal cells where the outer membrane will butt off and encapsulate the EVs? Or like, what is the, um, I guess, the cell wall of plant cells look like? Like how permeable and how active is it?
2: That's a great question. Um, and it's one that we actually don't fully understand yet because you're right. Plant cells are surrounded by cell walls. They have a lot of cellulose in those cell walls and lignin. Those are very difficult to degrade cellulose and lignin, and they're also really tough cell walls. So we're actually not sure exactly how the extracellular vesicles are going in and out of plant cells. However, we do know that the some extracellular vesicles are still formed from the multivesicular bodies. So basically a big vesicle forms with a bunch of smaller vesicles inside of it. And somehow that gets secreted into the space between cells, but no one has yet figured out exactly how that works with the cell wall.
0: Well, maybe it requires the cell walls to be torn, maybe like an invading fungus, let's say, you know, maybe the plant doesn't do anything to react, but only when the cell walls, let's say, become degraded or broached, then you know, the EVs come out and uh, and cause the defense. Maybe it's passive until then. I don't know.
2: That's possible. It's possible that that happens. It's also possible that there's another mechanism because we have taken samples of extracellular vesicles from plants that aren't infected with fungus. So they are still secreting these vesicles without infection. So there are probably multiple mechanisms at play here.
0: Are there ion channels in the cell wall of plant cells or like what surface features may hint at, you know, how uh, the cell wall could be broached?
2: So one interesting feature of plant cells and their cell walls is how the cell walls expand and change because the word cell, we think of it often in the context of like a prison cell and a prison cell does not get bigger and smaller as the weather changes However, plants have the ability to loosen the fibers of their cell walls so that they can grow and get longer while the cells are developing. So in new shoot tissue, also in like flowers, especially plants like sunflowers that follow the sun, that's an example of cell walls loosening and expanding on one side of the plant and not expanding on the other side of the plant. So that imbalance is what causes the flowers to turn towards the sun.
0: What about cell division in plants? I'm sure that's been observed under the microscope. What does that look like versus animal cells? And does that give clues as to what's possible?
2: Plant cell division is really cool. Most animal cells divide. They sort of pinch together in the center and then separate. Plant cells actually divide by forming a plate in the center of the cell. So they actually divide from the inside out. There it's, it's a really interesting process that is get, becoming more and more better understood. But basically the cell, um, the nucleus divides. And then as all of different cellular components are segregating onto the two sides of the cell, they start sending Small vesicles with building blocks of new cell wall material to the center of the plant cell, and they build out a wall from the inside out until it meets at the edges. And then once it is fully formed, you have where you once had one cell, you now basically have a wall through the middle, and you have two new cells that can then expand as they mature.
0: Hmm, Okay. So, um, in nature, which plants, unfortunately, seem to be the the most susceptible to this fungus?
2: So the problem with this fungus is that we don't have any management strategies to control it. So if it can infect a plant and it does infect a plant, um, the plant has to live with that then. And while the plants do have some defenses like the RNA interference, they generally can't beat it if it's a big enough infection that's successful enough. also can the environment contributes to this. So Botrytis likes sort of humid environments, not too sunny, not too hot, but it does then infect a lot of crop plants. Um, strawberries are a good example because the Botrytis will also bite its time. It can be present in the plant, but it knows, well, it knows with air quotes that the mature berries, these mature strawberries are more nutritious. They're going to be, be a better bang for the fungus's buck. So they'll hold off on killing the plant host until it's produced these mature fruits. And then it will burst into infection mode, true infection mode. And then that's how you get that fuzzy gray mold all over your strawberries just a day after they come home from the grocery store.
0: Is it so? Is it has it already infected the plant? It's just in the latent mode and then it becomes active at that point. Yes, yes. Has anyone been able to demonstrate how long latency can happen? Can it carry from growing period to growing period? Like, can it somehow be taken along with the seeds and then come into another, you know, strawberry plant or whatever that never really appeared to be exposed to it, but was carried over from the, the uh, you know, the plant progenitors? Via
2: seeds, I don't believe that's been shown. However, it can be in this latent phase in the soil. So if a field gets infected, if there are infected plants in a field, often what the farmers have to do is they have to burn all of the plant material in order to make sure that none of the fungus survives in that dead plant matter or the top layers of soil.
0: So once it's in a field, you know, how do people get rid of it? And how Well, first of all, how would a farmer know? Is it totally obvious or what happens? He goes to harvest and he goes, oh God, there's mold all over everything. Like, how does it, how is it discovered? And then what do they do? So
2: yes, the most common method and the easiest way to know it's there is if you see this fuzzy gray mold growing on the leaves, on the fruits, the flowers, whichever sort of plant it's infecting, you'll see this fuzzy gray mold and it is somewhat distinctive. However, a lot of fungi look the same. So depending on how well versed a farmer is in the various different types of plant pathogens, it's easier or harder to recognize. Um, so it kind of depends on your level of expertise and how many potential fungal pathogens there are like in that climate region. But it is a big problem that we don't have any early detection mechanisms. We can't really detect spores unless we take samples from lots of different places and sequence them using sequencing similar to the bacterial 16S sequencing, where you can get a readout of lots of different types of stuff that's there.
0: Well, so if I'm a farmer and I have a big field and I see some of this in one part of the field, you know, I don't want to throw everything away. Is there a way that I can harvest and then sterilize and still sell on market and the fruit would be edible or the plants would be edible?
2: It's possible. However, fungicides don't fully work with this fungus. There are several different types of fungicides, just like we have several different types of antibiotics for human um, back, like bacterial infections. There are different classes of fungicides, but none of the fungicides that we have right now can fully remove the fungus once it infects a plant. So if it's only infecting the leaves at that time, it's possible that the fruits could be harvested and salvaged. However, if they are infecting the fruits, it would be, it's at this point, basically impossible to then have those fruits go to market unless it's a very, very early stage of infection.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, the the plants that don't visibly look infected again, maybe after they're harvested, you know, now they're disconnected from their root system and nutrients and all that. You know, maybe perhaps at that point there's a way to sterilize them with UV or something where the fungus won't be active. But um, I'm sure people have mistakenly, or you know, it's been deliberately covered up. I'm sure a lot of people have eaten fruits with this in it. Does anything happen to them? Are they okay, or they get the fungus somehow?
2: So that's the good thing. Botrytis doesn't actually infect humans. Um, However, it does, as a necrotrophic fungal pathogen, it does destroy the plant cells. So if you've seen a moldy strawberry, they don't just get fuzz on the outside. They start sort of sinking in underneath the fuzz. That's because the plant cells are being destroyed. So small amounts are not going to hurt a human. But if you try and eat a strawberry that's completely covered in fuzz, I imagine your digestive system would have some trouble. I haven't tried it personally. Well, no, no.
0: I mean, I'm sure like, uh, you know, I'm sure I've had strawberries that were in a field that were infected. And again, the farmer doesn't want to waste them all. So they might've just, you know, picked whatever they could that looks okay, but probably has the fungus in it. You know, and maybe by the time it got to me, I ate it. The strawberry looked okay. It seemed to taste okay. The fungus just hadn't gotten to the point where it started to you know, come out of its latency.
2: Right. So that's fine. Um, that's not gonna hurt a human. Botrytis scenario doesn't produce mycotoxins or anything, so it is comparatively safe to
0: eat. Oh, at least that's good. Okay. Yes. So where does the latency occur? Like when the fungus is quote unquote inside a plant, is it sitting outside the plant cells, outside the cell walls, like in the ingestitium? Or where does it hang out?
2: So unlike some fungi, botrytis doesn't form um, protrusions into plant cells. It just attacks them head on. So it's not going to be like growing in between plant cells. It's more likely that it would either stay as a spore that doesn't start growing, or it's possible that it infects a very small area and then stops attacking and just kind of sits there until it senses more favorable conditions.
0: Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi Green Juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi Red Juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com slash genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com Forward slash genius. Use code GENIUS to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organify.com slash genius. But again, we don't know if it sits inside or outside the cells. And what does it do with, it, with its bounty? You know, like let's say, it, does it chew its way through a cell wall and then like feast on the contents inside, or does it go hang out inside there? Like, what does it do? What's its behavior inside of a plant?
2: So, the botrytis fungus produces a lot of enzymes and proteins upon infections, infection. And a lot of those enzymes, their sole purpose is to break apart the plant cell wall. And it is so that the botrytis can then have access to all of the nutrients that are stored inside the plant cell. So it does break through the cell wall and essentially suck out all of the useful stuff that's in the plant cells
0: oh but does it use them as sites for future growth of its own mycelium like where does the um where do where appear to be like the nucleation sites for the mycelium and does it have fruiting bodies you know ironically you know this this fungus or no
2: it does have a sexual reproductive phase it's um it has a different scientific name and I don't study that part of the system. So I'm not as familiar with it, but um, it does chew through plant cells and basically degrades them completely and then uses that energy to produce spores, to reproduce asexually.
0: Do you have any like, uh, you know, pet, pet mold growing in the lab, like sitting on the shelf where you watched it completely consume a plant and then see what it does? You know, does it make like mushrooms on the, you know, it makes this gray mold but does it make like mushrooms or fruiting bodies on the surface of a, of a strawberry or anything? Like what happens as it, as it goes along? I
2: don't believe that it produces fruiting bodies. It just yeah, okay. grows more and more hyphae and spreads that way.
0: Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Once it gets into a field, like what percentage loss of yield where there'll be, in you know, a ballpark, like how much damage does it do?
2: I think that the ballpark estimates um, are around loss if it infects a field. However, that also just largely depends on the conditions, the environment, and if it's humid, if it rains, if it's easy, if it spreads all throughout the field or not. But if left untreated for long enough, it will destroy everything.
0: Oh, wow. That's pretty significant.
2: Yes. So it will continue to grow and eventually has the potential to destroy a lot.
0: Right. Okay. So are there any, I don't know if you've ever spoken to any farmers or people that work with various plants or fruits, is there any way they've found any natural predators or ways to get rid of this or prevent it from happening?
2: Currently, no. While there are other plant pathogens where scientists have found potential um, other microbes that counter those effects, there isn't a lot of research on Botrytis because because it's a necrotroph. Necrotrophic fungal pathogens were largely overlooked for a long time because the general thought was that, oh, they just kill the cells. They break the plant cells open. That's all they do. So people were more focused on the biotrophic and the hemibiotrophic fungi because those ones live within the plants. So they were considered more interesting. So not a lot about botrytis is determined at this point, such as its interactions with other fungi
0: and bacteria. And there's no common wisdom on anything to do about it? Like, again, once a farmer has it, they're screwed? Or is there any best practices they can do to help mitigate it somehow?
2: So some fungicides are partially effective, so they can mitigate it by applying those fungicides. However, the main problem there is simply the cost farmers can't afford to dump an infinite supply of fungicides on crops um, to to prevent the spread and to mitigate the spread so that's sort of the determining factor of how much crop loss there is it's how much money can they throw at this problem how much longer do they have to go do they have to last in the field before they can be harvested
0: well if um on some plants, you said it's latent until the fruit stage. Um, maybe the fungicides can be used right before the end of the fruiting stage when they would you know, go from latency to, to activity. Do the fungicides work better when the mold is in a latent state versus an active state?
2: I don't believe so, but I don't know for sure. I do know that in general, fungal spores are really hardy, though. They're hard to
0: break open. So if you would, just tell me again about your research. What specifically are you focused in on in in regards to botrytis?
2: So specifically, I'm looking at um, extracellular vesicles going back and forth between plants and the botrytis. So like I said, we know that the plants are sending small interfering RNAs into the fungal cells. I'm looking at what the fungal cells are sending into the plant cells. So, my research is actually working to look for different proteins in those extracellular vesicles that are contributing to the Botrytis' virulence against the plant host.
0: Is it, I mean, I know you wouldn't have all the surrounding other cells and the cell to cell signaling, but is it possible to put, you know, one or two plant cells in a petri dish with some nutrient source and, you know, one or two bits of hyphae or one or two bits of fungus and see if you can watch them interact with a time-lapse, you know, in a visible, visible microscope, would that be possible?
2: I think theoretically it's possible. You'd have to use plant protoplasts though, which means that they would have their cell wall removed. You can't really have plant cells with cell walls free floating, but I have not seen anybody do that. It's an interesting idea though.
0: Yeah, because I just wonder if, if no one understands the dynamics of how, you know, plant cells will interact with the outside world, it seems like it would be a very difficult thing to to consummate your research. It's just like a, a gigantic unknown. So like, what ideas do you have to figure out how this is happening or what the signaling is?
2: So I'm going at this problem from sort of a genetics manipulation um, perspective. I'm trying to figure out potential proteins that could be going into plant cells from the fungal cells. And then what I'm doing is I'm generating mutant botrytis strains that either lack that protein entirely or that have that protein um, marked with a fluorescent tag so that I can hopefully visualize them with microscopy and see if they're going outside of the fungal cells and into the plant cells.
0: Well, what if you were to take, you know, a given plant and this fungus and sample some of the cells and let's say look at metagenomics of both, then introduce them to each other, do it again after like a few hours, do it again after maybe a week or two, and then do it again when the fungus is in an active phase and compare the metagenomics to see if any of that have changed in both parties, you know, throughout this interaction at all stages.
2: So similar work to that has been done. I haven't done it, but I've read papers that have had a similar approach. And the only difficulty with that method is that a lot of stuff comes up on the level of hundreds, thousands of different proteins being found, hundreds being upregulated, hundreds being downregulated. And then the challenge is sort of figuring out what's doing what.
0: Well, if it, if they all follow a similar path, I know it's, it is complicated if hundreds turn on and off and the epigenetics change a lot. But if you had, I don't know, a hundred different exposures and a hundred different timelines and they all looked pretty similar or somewhat similar, maybe then you could figure out what's going on. That might help. I don't know. Or maybe the process is, you know, God forbid so different each time, so heterogeneous that you can't really figure anything out. How, how bad is it?
2: That sounds like it would be a good thesis project for a graduate student. That sounds like it would take a while, but would probably yield some interesting
0: results. Yeah. So, um, any success in in your work so far? Are you have you identified any proteins that you think will be responsible for, you know, the interaction from the fungi to the plants?
2: So I have identified a couple potential targets and I've started um, doing some experiments with them. And so far it's promising, but I don't have enough data to be certain yet. Um, what I have seen is one of my proteins of interest. I generated a botrytis strain that lacked that protein, lacked the ability to produce that protein entirely. And when I tested it against some regular plants. It actually showed a much, much less effective infection. So when I did that, the, the normal botrytis created lesions on the plant cells that were standard lesion size for how many spores I infected them with and the The mutant strain that lacked this protein was hardly able to make any lesions. They were much, much smaller and much less severe over the same time period. So that was exciting.
0: Well, if you're able to isolate that protein and maybe you have a bacteria make it or again, cultured fungi make it, maybe that could be used to inoculate uh, a plant. You know, it's exposed to these proteins. Maybe it develops defenses. Then you introduce the fungus. And now the plant's already seen those particular proteins and has already had time to evolve defenses. And maybe that would work.
2: That's also a very interesting idea.
0: Uh, Any talks with with farmers that have been affected by this just to hear maybe anecdotally they'll give you some clues as to, you know, that will inform what you do. Are there any farmers that you've spoken to or could you to to help along that that area?
2: At this point, I haven't spoken to anyone. I've been um, more... On the side of the spectrum from the on a spectrum of science for science's sake to practical applications, I'm more towards the basic research side of things. So I'm trying to figure out how these mechanisms are working. And then I'll be able to move into like applications of those processes. Because if I do identify a protein or a group of proteins that are acting to contribute to the botrytis' virulence against plants. Then the next step would be to determine how to counteract those systems. Do we block all transport between the plant cells and the fungal cells? Do we specifically target those proteins and try and develop, see if we have tools to degrade them? Do we prime the plant cells to react to those like you suggested? That's all um, downstream research that would need to be done.
0: Gotcha. Are there any plants or fruits that you think would be a perfect snack for the botrytis, but for some reason it doesn't bother them?
2: Most of the fruits that come to mind um, are infected, can be infected by the botrytis. Strawberries, tomatoes, grapes, all of those fleshy, juicy produce options can have um, botrytis infect them.
0: Well, strawberries and grapes have, you know, I guess grapes have the highest sugar content. Strawberries less and then tomatoes, I mean, I would think maybe next. Negligible compared to those. So, does it affect all those fruits the same way? Maybe sugar or the absence of it plays a role or no role.
2: That's also possible. I don't know the answer to that though. I just know that we've worked with all of those. We we have a lot of projects in the lab, and another graduate student is working on projects testing um, the effectiveness of certain treatments against tomato infections. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Okay. Are there are there, um, are there any fruits that, um, you know, again, botrytis like really kicks its ass and just it's completely devastating to more than others?
2: Not specifically. And it's another another problem with this area of research is that a lot of agricultural data is not this specific. So a lot of farmers aren't going to be able to go out there, see a fungus and say, ah, yes, this is botrytis scenario. And it has accounted for 10% of my yield loss this year. The data that I have access to is more, um, 20% of crops were lost due to various moisture and fungal and bacterial, um, causes.
0: I see what you mean. I don't know. I know. I'm pretty sure I know your answer, but how about the different pesticides that are used, you know, on a given plant versus another? You know, maybe that uh, that modulates the behavior of the fungus. Maybe it slows it or encourages it, you know, um, maybe right after a spring, this stuff is, goes latent for a while while the fungus tries to get around the, you know, the new pesticide that's in there that maybe hinders it. Any action like that that's been observed?
2: So that's not my area of expertise. I haven't come across any papers that I recall right now that talked about that, but I'm sh- pretty sure that someone should have tested that at this point.
0: Yeah. I guess there's just tons and tons and tons of variables. So mm-hmm. it's hard to, it's hard to figure out what's what. Yeah, Are there organizations that see botrytis as a huge threat? Like, um, you know, in the world of farming, are farmers even aware or they just say, Oh, fungus is a real problem for us, but that's as far as they go.
2: Depends on the region. There was a paper published, and I believe science, in a couple years ago, like 2019-2020, that listed the top 10 most economically significant fungal pathogens of plants. And botrytis came in number two. So it is significant.
0: Interesting. Is there any wisdom for farmers? Or again, they're not even aware at that level, but is there there any like wisdom on how to reduce the incidence of botrytis? I guess once it takes hold, you're screwed, but you know, to stop it from happening, anything that you heard that people can do? It's
2: things like making sure that you're sterilizing your equipment, especially if it's a huge operation and you're moving from area to area. Sterilization is really important. So making sure that you're not like like with food cross-contaminating things. So if you work with an area of the field or area of this um, agricultural space that's more prone to botrytis infection, say it's moisture, say it's in a specific humid environment, then when you're moving to other areas, you really need to make sure that you clean everything thoroughly. And this is also true in the transport process, so once the food has been harvested, if it's potentially infected, you need to keep it separate from everything else because it will spread.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. What, what do you think is going to be possible for you and you know some of your compatriots to figure out in the next few years? What do you think is going to take a long time to figure out what's, what's achievable relatively soon?
2: I think that in the next few years, most of what we're going to be able to produce is potential targets. For applications in fields, I think that it is going to take a bit longer to actually get those solutions to market, especially with all the regulatory stuff that goes on with food production. So I think that it will be some time before these solutions are actually used in agriculture, but I think that in the next few years, we'll definitely have a better idea of how to address them.
0: Okay, excellent. Where can people go to keep tabs on your work?
2: I have a Twitter. I'm at Claire Whittaker 5. And um, but the lab that I work in, the lab of Hyling Jin at UC Riverside also has a website.
0: Well, excellent. So those are two good places to go. So yeah, Claire, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, I know I asked you a lot of questions that probably no one person could know all the answers to. So I appreciate your willingness to, to say, I don't know, but here's what I do know. So thank you so much for coming.
2: Of course. Thank you again for having me.
0: Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi Green Juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi Red Juice superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com slash genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organify.com slash genius.
1: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.